Whose side are you on? As we come to the Lord's table this morning, this question is of utmost importance. We do come to this table to receive the blessing of communing with Christ, the blessing of communing with one another. We come to gain in that sense, but participating in this meal is also a means by which we publicly announce our loyalty and our fidelity to Jesus Christ alone. Lord willing, we will gather next Sunday morning at 9 o'clock to witness the baptism of several individuals. These believers will be immersed in order to identify publicly with the crucified and risen Lord Christ. They will be saying in this act that I belong to Jesus, that He is my Lord. And we understand that as we observe baptism and understand it biblically. And I think we should also recognize that the Lord's Supper serves as a parallel declaration. We come to this meal to commune with Christ. We come to this meal to receive gracious blessing. Yet every time we eat this meal together, we demonstrate that we are on the Lord's side. The Lord's Supper is in part a public announcement of our loyalty and our fidelity to Jesus Christ. This is one reason we require that those who participate in the Lord's Supper have been baptized. First, you individually declare to the assembly your oneness with Christ by baptism. Then you continue to declare your allegiance to Jesus Christ by partaking of this meal with the redeemed community as often as they eat and drink in remembrance of Christ. This meal is an ongoing reminder then that we must flee from all idolatry and render to Christ alone our absolute fidelity. I rejoice to come to times like this and to have this opportunity to say with God's people, we serve the Lord Christ alone. We learn this truth about the Lord's Supper And what is really a secondary application from the writings of Paul to the Corinthians, and if you'll make your way there to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we learn of this truth here, and I'd like to apply it to our preparation for the Lord's Supper, but also to drive home this point of our need to be loyal to Jesus Christ. And in participating in this table, we are saying that we serve Him alone. The Corinthian church had written a letter to Paul. You may remember in this letter they raised a number of practical questions relating to their life as Christians in a very pagan environment. In chapters 8 through 10, Paul takes up the matter of Christians eating meat that has been offered to idols at pagan temples. Paul argues that it is acceptable for Christians to eat such meat because it is, after all, simply meat. But there is much more at stake here than just that. Less mature Christians identified such meat as the distinct property of the idol to which it was offered. These believers would have to violate their consciences to eat such meat, and they would be in serious danger of returning to the path of pagan idolatry. And so 
Paul says, let me just point back to chapter 8 first before we get into chapter 10, but verse 9 of chapter 8, Paul then says, chapter 8 and verse 9, Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother, for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause him to fall. So, says Paul, for their sake, do not eat meat offered to idols, if by doing so you will entice a believer to stumble in sin. In other words, it is not enlightenment, but love that must be the rule of the Christian community. It is not merely a matter of what I know meets God's approval. That's not the end of the issue. It is a matter of how my actions affect my brothers and sisters in Christ. In chapter 10 now, Paul addresses the strong again. There are some who might deny this interpretation of the section, but I think that this is who he's speaking to in this section. I think he's returning to these who are referred to as having a strong conscience in chapter 8. Returning to them, Paul addresses the strong That is, those who believe and understand that eating meat offered to idols is not a participation in sin inherently. I think it ought to be said as well from the start, and is certainly a belief of mine, that Paul does not address these strong Christians as super saints. Sometimes that confusion is made. But I rather, I think Paul issues a stern warning about their fidelity to the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, they are flirting with idolatry and temptation as they ask this very question to him. And as we listen in, we are instructed in our walk with Christ. We are instructed, first of all, to heed the warning from Israel's history. God hates spiritual infidelity. Verse 1 of chapter 10. We'll just fairly quickly walk our way through this section of Scripture. But God despises spiritual infidelity. Listen to the warning that comes from Israel's history. Verse 1, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. Reverence, obviously, to Israel's deliverance from Egypt as they go through the Red Sea. And the cloud is there above them as it leads them through the Red Sea and the walls of water on each side. It was a baptism of identification with Moses of sorts, God's representative and deliverer. As verse 2 says, they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. It's a strange sort of baptism, but Paul uses this analogy. There is this cloud, there are the walls of water, and these people are baptized into Moses. That is, they identify with him and the deliverance that he is leading. Verse 3, they all ate the same spiritual food. He moves on to their experience in the desert. 
They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. We remember the food that the Israelites received in the desert, this manna that came from God, and the water that was provided for them from the rock. This rock, says Paul, was Christ. Now what does he mean by that? Not that Christ was in the rock or that Christ is a rock, or literally, something like that. But he means that Christ is an antitype of divine salvation and provision. As God brought water out of this rock to provide rescue for Israel, so ultimately that is a picture of Christ providing salvation and rescue for his people. In one sense of the term, God works that way, to save his people. He did so by providing manna and by providing water. He does so today by the provision of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in that sense, we can say that the rock was Christ. The bread from heaven was Christ. It is God's provision for his people that is in view. All of this provision all of them participating in this deliverance from God, this miraculous provision, yet, verse 5, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. There's a great contrast here with most and all. In verses 1 through 4, we find repeated references to all. They all participated in this provision of God they all ate, they all drank, they all passed through the sea. But with most of those people that God had miraculously delivered, He judged them, and their bodies were scattered across the desert. Israel fell under the severe discipline of God for her unfaithfulness to Him. Their corpses were strewn on the floor of the desert. What is the point that Paul is making to the Corinthian believers? He says then in verse 6, Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. We should heed the warning from salvation history. Although God provided miraculously for Israel, she was severely disciplined for her infidelity. As God's people today, we must not lust after evil things as they did. We must take to heart the loyalty that we need to demonstrate to Christ. In other words, continues Paul, verse 7, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. He's going to now use some examples from Israel's history and say, Remember this occasion. In Exodus 32, where the Israelites have left Egypt and Moses goes up into the mountain to meet with God and he delays in the time. And in that time, as he delays, there is a golden calf that is made and Israel rises up to celebrate in pagan revelry around this calf, worshiping it, in a sense, as the idol that demonstrated their deliverance from Egypt, confusing the worship of God with this pagan act. And in wild, sensual dancing, they celebrate. Remember that, says Paul. These were the people who were miraculously delivered. And there they are, dancing before this calf. Remember that. Let's remember 
what happened at Shittim, verse 8. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. At Shittim, the wandering Israelites were invited by the Moabites to join them in sacrificing to Baal of Peor. Baal of Peor was worshipped by the prostitution of Moabite virgins. And the Israelites were involved in this worship and joined it for the moment and joined in this immorality. Don't forget that experience, says Paul to the Corinthians. And the consequence was God's great anger against Israel. 23,000 in one day. And some thousand others that died later. Verse 9 We should not test the Lord as some of them did. He gives a third example. And were killed by snakes. A reference to Numbers 21. Remember the complaining in the desert as God sent venomous snakes that killed many of the Israelites. And verse 10. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. Numbers 14 and 16. As the Israelites are disciplined for their murmuring against God. These were the people that were baptized into Moses. These were the people that were blessed by God and spared. Yet these were the very people that God disciplined for their sin, their sensuality, their idolatry, their wickedness, their grumbling. Remember them. And then Paul says in verse 11, going back to his point in verse 6, These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. That is, living in the era following the Christ, living in this era of fulfillment, we realize the idolatrous, unfaithful actions of the Israelites were recorded in God's written word to warn us against similar folly. Do not Follow idols. Remain loyal to Christ. Verse 12, So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. I believe here that Paul is directly addressing those who would be referred to as the strong in conscience. You think you are standing firm. You think by perceiving clearly your freedoms in Christ, that you stand firm in Christ. Be very careful that you do not fall into sin. He's demonstrated his concern about those weak in conscience who can be dragged into sin by other Christians. But he says, I want to talk to you who think you see clearly on this. Be very careful lest you fall like them. They were proud. Paul warns them to remember that Israel had once been in the same situation and it did not end well for her. And then Paul adds a word of hope. Do not be tempted. Do not be drawn away. Stand firm, knowing this, verse 13, that no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. There's a sermon series in that verse alone. We look at it in a very sketchy way. But you'll notice first, let me just mention, it is not a way out from under the temptation, but a way to bear up under it. The Corinthians should not conclude that the temptations they faced in their pagan culture were beyond resistance. 
And I think probably in their minds as they're thinking through this issue, what they see is in the city of Corinth, these pagan temples where there is ritual prostitution and where there are sumptuous meals that are offered, restaurants, if you want to put it that way, and and opportunities there for entertainment and pleasure. And they're everywhere around. Don't think that these sensual temptations are beyond your resistance, says Paul. They're not. Maybe the restaurants, quote-unquote, of Corinth are better than any other in the known world. And maybe the temptations and the allures of sexual pressures are greater than in any other city we know. But these temptations are not greater than the power of God. He can deliver you through them. He can help you bear up under them. He will limit the temptation. He will provide the grace to handle it. It is a great word of encouragement and comfort before Paul now turns to a provocative command in verse 14. So to this point, these first 13 verses are somewhat preliminary. They're saying, heed the warning from Israel's history. God hates spiritual infidelity. And God will provide you the strength to stand. Secondly, he says, flee idolatry in your own world. God demands spiritual fidelity. Verse 14, therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. But what does Paul mean? To what specifically does he refer here? Flee from idolatry. Before answering that question, Paul defends his call by appealing to the example of the Lord's Supper, of the Lord's Table. Verse 15, I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? This cup of thanksgiving, this third cup in the Passover meal where we assume that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper at this place, at least that is very possible, to eat the bread and drink the wine of the Lord's Supper is to participate in Christ's shed blood and sacrificed body. It is a participation in it. It is a fellowship with it. Those who eat this meal commune with and identify with Jesus crucified. They also identify with Christ's people, verse 17. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. This ancient practice of breaking off pieces from one loaf, symbolizing the unity of these people. We do this in our own world. It's very different, isn't it? But we get together with family, and what do we do? Get together with family, we often eat, don't we? We get together as a church. Sometimes I think church slides are 75% food events, it seems like. That's not simply because of gluttony. That's because food binds together. It draws people into communion. It is an act of fellowship. And when you are involved in eating together, there is a sense of fellowship that you enjoy. This isn't always the case. In our culture, that might be less obvious at times. But this binds us together, this meal. It draws us together in participatory communion with one another. 
He moves on not only from the Lord's Supper, but then going back to Israel and to her sacrifices. Verse 18 is another example of this communion. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? There's some debate as to what this means, but clearly there were portions of certain kinds of animal sacrifices that the Israelites offered to God, and when they did, they were to be eaten by the worshipers. So you bring your sacrifice, and a portion of that sacrifice is given back to you as it has been grilled, and you sit down and you eat a fellowship meal which binds you to the altar. Participating in such a meal constituted a participation in the sacrificial system, or at least a participation in the meat cooked on the altar, however you interpret the phrase. But Paul adds this illustration, I think this is just a little side note and a very interesting note, he illustrates from Israel's sacrificial worship, I think in part, because it really doesn't work with the Lord's Supper. This is not a sacrificial meal. There is not a crucifixion of Christ that takes place in this meal. Otherwise, he would have no reason to bring in Israel's sacrifice here. But he does so to illustrate when you bring the sacrifice to the altar, you participate in the whole system. You participate in the altar Now, verse 19, as he begins to wind toward his point, do I mean then, just a word of qualification first, do I mean then that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. He's already established this point in chapter 8. It's not that this meat is inherently evil. It's not that some building or some altar itself is inherently evil. That is not what I am saying. Idols, for that matter, are nothing more than the block of wood or chunk of stone or brick of metal from which they are fashioned by the craftsman. There is no comparison with the sacrifices that are offered to God by Israel on this point, in these grounds. However, verse 20, the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. It's a pretty serious statement. And it brings highlight to what he means in verse 14 when he says, flee from idolatry. I don't want you to be participating with demons. What does he mean? The meat is just meat. The block of wood that makes the idol is just a block of wood. But listen... Strong Christians. Eating meat in a pagan temple constitutes participation with the demonic forces that encourage pagan worship. Pagan worship is not nothing. Pagan worship is something. The meat is just meat. The block of wood is just a block of wood. But there's something else going on in those temples. It's the worship of demons. I would imagine that for some of the strong Christians in Corinth, this put a chill up their spine. Because as we understand the context of these chapters, they were clearly attending pagan temples. And Paul says to them, you are worshiping demons. And verse 21, the logical conclusion 
And his call to them as the preacher is, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. You cannot participate in both. You will be loyal to one or the other. You have to choose whose side you are on. Some of the Corinthian believers felt that they were free to eat meat offered to idols, and they were. Chapter 10 and verse 25, Paul says, Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. They were right. But there is a great difference between eating a piece of meat and eating that meat in a pagan temple at the table of a false god. There's even been discovered some statements made, some invitations that have been unearthed in, in papyri where they say, come to the table of such and such a God for fellowship. Paul says that's exactly what's happening here. Since you commune with Christ in the Lord's Supper, you commune with demons when you share a ritual meal at these pagan temples. Flee from idolatry. Your loyalty belongs to Christ alone. What are you doing, Paul is saying. Now, he's taken a long time to get here. He's easing them into it through chapters 8 and 9 and probably reflecting somewhat their questions to him, which we don't have. In fact, if anybody unearthed that, that would be a major find, to be able to understand 1 Corinthians better by knowing what in the world they were asking him in the first place. But he does take a long time to get to this place, and now having come to the point, he says... He really lays it down hard and asks this question, what are you doing? Verse 22, are you trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? This word stronger is not a waste of ink. I think it is a word very carefully selected. It is a subtle reference to the strong of conscience. Are we stronger than God? They claim the right to eat meat offered to idols, and they claim the right that they could eat that meat wherever they chose, including in pagan temples. And Paul says, are you stronger than God? You have a stronger conscience than he? The issue here, says Paul, is your fidelity to the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is in question. In fact, it is jeopardized seriously when you eat this meat in a pagan temple. Enlightenment and Christian freedom are not the primary consideration. Compassionate love for others and devotion and love for Christ are what is to be considered. Now there's a lot more work for me to do in these passages. This is not an easy section of Scripture. But I've come to the preliminary conclusion that in the most narrow sense of the term, I'm not sure that there is any direct application to us from this passage. Direct. I don't know. And if someone can come up with an idea, let's talk afterwards. I'd love to hear that. I'm not sure that there's direct application. Some Christians have missed this point entirely, claiming on the one hand that virtually any activity or practice that is involved in a pagan or ungodly culture is evil. And so we separate ourselves from everything, and we do nothing that our culture and our world does. We may dress differently, go to none of the same places, do none of the same activities, because this is a participation with demons. I think that's missing the point. Because I think it's a false application of the specific situation that was going on there in Corinth. 
On the other hand are those who conclude from Paul's words that virtually every scruple, every standard, every aversion to associate with some material aspect of one's culture constitutes a restriction of Christian freedom and is to be dismissed. It's quite curious, but the strong Christians dance and drink alcohol and gamble and attend movies and play poker and frequent bars and nightclubs because they're strong Christians. There's no scruples. We're free in Christ to do whatever we want to do. But we need to recognize that none of these applications is a perfect parallel to the Corinthian passage. And I don't think this passage should be used to defend any particular activity if it doesn't fit ideally. Let me just give one example. One thing that is questioned, in fact, I think we need to consider very carefully in our Christian experience is dancing. Let's compare that with meat offered to idols. Meat is a purely physical entity. When we pick up the issue of dancing, we have to say, what do you mean by dancing? There is dancing that brings honor to God. David dances in Scripture and brings glory to the Lord and is pictured as one dancing to the glory of God. So moving the body is not inherently evil. That is not really a parallel then, but dancing can be, and often in our culture is, sexually promiscuous. It can often be an act of infidelity to one's mate. It puts people together it shouldn't put together, and it puts them together in ways it shouldn't put them together. These are issues that we need to consider, but you see my point. This is not just an issue of meat offered to idols. When we consider activities such as this, we're dealing with different issues. We're dealing with something that is not inherently wrong to move the body to music. But we've also got other issues here. Meat doesn't dance around sensually. Meat just lays there on the plate until you do something with it. Dancing is a whole other piece of work and something that takes a lot more thought in application. So I just use that illustration to say it's real. we're not always comparing apples with apples. So we should exercise extreme caution before we invoke Paul's instructions concerning meat as giving us the right to participate in some action or association of our culture or to restrict such practices for that matter. But the larger point, there's a lot of work to do in application here, but the larger point is that whatever we do in this life, we must demonstrate loyalty to Jesus Christ. That is the issue and that is the issue we should ask, whether it is any of these activities that are questionable, that we consider, is it right or is it wrong? The issue is, does it evidence loyalty to Jesus Christ? The danger of the self-styled strong in conscience, as Paul reveals very clearly here, is that their free conscience leads them to participate with demons. They are right about the fact that there's nothing about a slab of meat that's inherently evil. But they are not thinking clearly enough about the application of their Christian life and what is right and what is wrong. The questions don't come to us in some form of law, some legal code that we can follow. You can dress this way, you can't dress that way. You listen to this, you don't listen to this. You go here, you don't go here. It's not that simple it's not, it's not given to us with that clarity in Scripture. But we need to consider very carefully our actions and do they demonstrate 
a disloyalty to Jesus Christ? What is going on in your home? What kind of entertainment do you pursue? This is a question we have to ask straight up. Does it demonstrate loyalty to Christ? And I would say that that answer will be cut different ways by different Christians at various levels of maturity. I believe that that is going to be the case. But we need to know in our heart that our conscience is clear and not seared. The issue is fidelity to Jesus Christ. Let me just use adventure. It's a bit dangerous. But to venture uh, an example of one who may miss this point. We could look at the issue of poker, for instance. There's nothing inherently evil about cards or chips as such. You don't touch them and become evil. They don't make you sinful. But we can see, and in fact there are many, quote-unquote strong Christians who knowing there's nothing evil about cards and nothing evil about chips, play that game routinely in casinos. And perhaps play not knowing that there are demons dancing around those tables rejoicing in what's going on there. In the brazen materialism, in the open theft, in the utter discontent with life and boredom with life that prevails in such places, in the smallness and in the self-centeredness, we have to wonder what dances around such a table. I venture that one point of application. And there are many other nuances to it in all of these issues that we face. But what is Paul saying? Listen, we can throw Paul away and say, this is meat offered to idols, it really doesn't have anything to do with us. Paul is looking some Christians in the face and he is telling them that what you do with clear conscience is participating with demons. That scares me. It ought to scare us. It should wake us up. And we should ask the question, with whatever we do, with wherever we go, with whomever we fellowship, that is my heart loyal to Jesus Christ. We cannot partake of the table of demons and of Christ. As important as questionable activities and associations, let's take what is blatantly obvious in this passage of Scripture. We should not be involved in verse 7 in wild partying with pagan orientation. To eat and drink and to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not be involved in sexual immorality, verse 8. We should not be involved in grumbling, verse 10. These are evidences of disloyalty to Jesus Christ. And let me just add here that the issue is not that Jesus is bigger and so he wins. The issue is that loyalty to Jesus Christ is what is at the heart of our soul's joy and gladness. 
Jesus says to you, be loyal to me because to be loyal to him is to find our home and our center and our joy. So we don't come up here and list a bunch of sins and say, don't you feel guilty about this? We lift up Jesus Christ and say, He is the source of joy and goodness. Pursue Him, be loyal to Him, and love Him. Whose side are you on this morning? By eating this meal, we are saying that we commune at no other table that is in competition to the Lord's table. Does your loyalty belong to Christ alone? Then come and eat in fellowship with Jesus and his people. And if it does not, then you must decide. You do not want to eat in judgment. But as we bow in prayer, all of us, I believe, and come before the Lord with words of repentance and asking Him to clear our conscience that we would be faithful and loyal to Him. Because if we come to eat at this table, we are saying, I belong to Christ alone. We cannot commune any other way. Our Father, these are heavy words. We struggle to know how to apply them. We struggle with conscience. We struggle, perhaps at times, with clouded conscience. And we know it. Father, we know also that we violate what is very clear in your word. We do grumble. We do lust. And we do love to run from you in our natures. We praise you before this table today that we come in the presence of a holy God who has provided the sacrifice for sin. We don't come, Father, to this table and say, oh, how loyal we are to Jesus. See us in our loyalty and fidelity. We come to you, Father, as those that are broken and humbled as sinners. We do not eat and drink because we have everything perfectly figured out or that we live sinlessly. We come to eat and drink to commune with the Christ who has rescued us from our sin. Father, thank you for this provision. Without it, we are nothing. But for those of us who, have, who know you as personal Savior, for those of us who have come to a place of identifying with you in baptism and now come to celebrate our oneness with Christ, I pray, God, that you would cleanse our hearts and that you would allow us in a unique way to commune with the Lord Jesus Christ as we commune with one another in this table. And with hearts cleared of sin, with great hope that wells up within us, we say to you by this act, we serve no other table. Be glorified in us here, I pray. In the name of Christ, amen.